Welcome back to the Pool Pro Podcast. Today's episode includes everything you ever wanted to know about solar, thermal, and electric. With electrification or the banning of natural gas being something we may have to deal with in the future, can solar step up to the plate to heat a pool or spa? Listen to find out on today's episode. We're here today with Ted Babin from All Valley Solar in Los Angeles, California. Morning, Ted. Morning. How are you? Hey, Ted. Good. Nice to see you. Good to see you. We're this is this is a discussion that kind of continues what we were talking about on other podcasts about the decarbonization, electrification of California. Um, there are some. There is a movement afoot to yes. eliminate gas heat in in our industry. And so we need to explore some alternatives. And, and I think we found a great one here. Um, Ted, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and about your company, All Valley Solar? Sure. Um, I got into solar way back when Jimmy Carter was president and, um, and uh, solar was really getting big in the early, well, mid 70s. Mm, nice. 1976. And in 1986, I got my contractor's license and I've been doing solar ever since as All Valley Solar. Uh, of course, back then it wasn't solar electric, it was solar thermal. Um, let's see if, um, and uh, so we did a lot of pool heating, a lot of hot water heating. And then in 1986, tax credits ended. So we mostly did service and repair on orphans companies went out of business. We took care of them for decades. And then solar has slowly been coming back as uh, global warming and uh, energy gets more expensive, et cetera. So uh, we are a very diverse uh, company. We don't just do, we're not a franchise. We don't just do one brand. We do mm -hmm. the best for whatever is best for the client. Uh, so I've been in solar for 44 years. Nice. Nice, Ted. And so what we're kind of interested today is finding out, can solar ever replace gas heat? What types of solar are available? And uh, maybe a little bit about how the different types of systems work. So I, uh, maybe you can just give us a little, little primer into solar for those of us who aren't really up to speed on it. Certainly. So in a general sense, let me just cover that first question first, which is, can solar completely replace gas heat? The answer is no, um, it, but it depends on the client's desires. For example, yeah. if you live in Los Angeles and you have a swimming pool and you only want to swim when the weather's nice and you do not have a spa, you could probably live with just solar and swim maybe from April through October. So instead of just one or two months a year with nothing, you could swim six or seven months. Now, if you have a spa, uh, that's not gonna work. You can't be getting 104 degree temperatures very often with solar. And most solar is not designed to do that. So uh, you gotta have gas heat for a spa. Um, number three, a lot of our clients, especially in LA are 
let's say higher end, or they really want to swim year round, whether it's for recreational, especially with COVID and staying at home. Right. Uh, they want their kids in the pool and, and to get exercise for older folks. So, uh, or all of us. So certainly all year swimming, uh, requires assistance of gas. I mean, think about it. When the sun is the lowest and the pool is the coldest, we're going to heat it all with solar. It would take a huge, huge amount and you still couldn't do it, even with a blanket. So there's got to be some assistance from some kind of heat. So now into the different types of solar. So uh, first- Ted, before you people, start, I want to say yeah. something real quick before you start that. Yeah. I just wanted to, for those of you who are not in California, who have started this podcast think, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not in California. I just want to be clear that just because it's happening only in California currently doesn't mean it's not coming to your state at some point in the future. So don't think just because you're not in California, this doesn't apply to you. We're talking about the decarbonization. Decarbonization, the, correct. The, the, the electrification, the yes. From natural gas, yeah, yes. okay. And they're going to do that by not putting gas lines in new developments. So the, like a new, a new housing development wouldn't even have a gas line put in. That's how they're going to do it. So don't think it's not possible that it could come to your area. I want to make sure that we had that caveat in there. Right, right. Um, so <clears throat> the different kinds of solar. So we have, first, let's delineate between the biggest differences. A lot of people think only of solar electric when they think solar. Well, solar electric is a newer type of solar, not an older one. It's newer and it makes electrons flow. It's a very, you know, it's almost like making computer chips when you make solar electricity cells. But when you, but then there's the older type of solar, which is thermal solar. We just used to call it solar, but now we have to delineate and call it thermal solar. Thermal solar is very simple in concept, uh, not very high tech at all. And yet it's extremely efficient three to four times more efficient at collecting energy, useful energy for man, than is the best solar electric. Three to four times more efficient. So how does it work? It's just a black object in the sun. And the sun hits it and gets hot. And you run water or air or something through it, and that fluid or air picks up heat and goes to some purpose. Now we can't make electricity from it unless it's a big industrial thing out in the desert where you uh, turn water into steam with that kind of thermal technology, often with mirrors and things, but you're not gonna do that on a house or a swimming pool. So ignoring that, you don't make electricity with thermal solar, but you can heat things. So if there's a purpose that requires heat, you never use solar electric for it, except maybe as a backup, which we are discussing today. Okay, so thermal is always used to heat things. Um, and when I say things, I mean pools, spas, hot water for apartment buildings, uh, things like that. Now, there are some more novel possible uses like air conditioning, because air conditioning can be done by heating something and condensing. But that's very unusual, not really uh, established technology in a cost-effective way. So uh, I will only slightly refer to that. But uh, basically, and you can heat houses. 
if you store water and you run it through a radiator and blow air through it, hot water can heat a house. Uh, do we do that very often? Well, not in warm parts of the country, but it is done some in cold parts of the country where that extra hardware is worth it. Uh, otherwise, it's just not worthwhile in temperate, temperate zones. Uh, it can be done for radiant floor heating, for example. So those are other applications of heat. Now, when we get to pool heating uh, or spa heating, um, there are a number of different types of thermal collectors. And I think this is where you ended up phoning me was to discuss that. I'm going to share my screen. Um, all right, you can all see my screen now? Yes. So most, uh, most pool heating panels are unglazed. An unglazed panel is simply a black mat, which can be made out of rubber, vinyl, plastic, or copper. And the most common is plastic. This happens to be a picture of a common one, uh, a copper one, because they look better and I tend to sell those. But plastic is very, very common. Um, they all work about the same. Unglazed means no glass cover. There's nothing over this. There's not even any insulation under it, although we try to create dead airspace for better performance. Uh, but basically the sun comes in, hits this black, warms it, water goes through here, pool water, and comes out slightly warmer, like three, four, five degrees warmer uh, at four gallons a minute. Uh, it typically takes a big area, like uh, 60 to 100% of the pool is a good system of the pool's surface area um, for effective uh, heating in fair weather, meaning something like April through October. Now, if we um, go to the next type of collector, we go to glazed, a glass covered collector is the same inside. It's the same black or special coated uh, copper collector inside, but it has glass over it and it's in an aluminum frame and it's insulated underneath with insulation. Now these panels can reach 400 degrees if they're sitting in the sun stagnating. So um, they, they can make very high temperature water. They're not as commonly used for pools, although we certainly have a lot of clients who use them. Uh, they should be used if it's for all year swimming uh, to contribute more in the winter than an unglazed panel, uh, or they should be used if you're in a marine setting where you have cool breezes. Um, I'll show you how to, why in, in a minute. Let's just get an overview of the different kinds. And then this was brought up, I guess, in your last podcast. This is a, uh, a evacuated tube, typical system. Very unusual for pools, hardly ever used. Uh, but these are evacuated tubes, meaning they have a vacuum between the black material that you see inside and the glass tube. Let's see if we have a close up. There we go. So. This actually has glass. It's a glass tube that's sealed and a vacuum. Heat can't be lost through that. So the reasons for these different kinds of collectors are heat loss. 
we're gaining heat by the sun hitting the panel. But before it ever gets to where it's going, whether it's a tank or whether it's a pool, there's some heat loss from that collector. Well, you can imagine an unglazed collector like this is losing a lot of heat from its surface if it's a cool day. So it's warming, but it's also cooling. Now, if it's 80 degrees and you want an 85 degree pool, you're not losing much heat to the ambient air. But if it's 60 degrees and you're trying to heat a pool to 80, you're losing a lot of heat from this before it gets in the water. So that well, that's why, Ted, that's why uh, these systems tend to reach a point of diminishing returns uh, as we get into late fall and winter seasons, the between the, uh, the angle of the sun and the, the colder air temp and the breezes, we're just not picking up the heat or we're losing it as we pick it up. Absolutely. And of course, the load is bigger. The heat, the pool is losing more heat. Even right. if you have a blanket, it's losing more heat. So every panel made is tested and certified uh, in order to compete in the market. So there's an outfit called the SRCC, Solar Ratings and Certification Corporation. And they have uh, pretty much been chosen as the test lab that tests all solar panels. And they put out a chart. This is only a partial chart, but let me explain it. So category A, is when the air, the ambient air, is nine degrees hotter than your desired water temperature. So that means a 90 degree day when you want an 81 degree pool. That's not very relevant. It's not gonna be hard to heat the pool then. Category B is the opposite. It's when it's nine degrees cooler out than your desired pool. Well, that would be typical in a temperate climate like Los Angeles or you know, other, other parts of the South where the air temperature is uh, a little colder than your desired pool temperature. This is a very relevant number for pool heating. Now, let me go to one of the others. And what is the number? What was the, what was the number there? Oh. Just for the, the audio oh. listeners, Ted? Yes, this number is BTUs per square foot per day is the result. And they show it on a clear day, a mildly cloudy day and a cloudy day. The sun only puts out about 2000 BTUs per square foot. Calculate that out and you can see, knowing how long it takes a heater to heat a pool, that you need a, a fairly large area to heat a pool with any kind of solar. Now, if we go to gotcha. a glazed, go ahead. Go, yes, I just said gotcha, yep. If that we makes go sense. to a glazed panel, so when we talk about heating a pool, we're usually using unglazed panels, which have this particular rating. Now, this is, as I said, nine degrees, um, where the air is nine degrees colder than your desired pool temperature. And this would be the rating. So that's 900 on a clear sunny day, 900 BTUs per square foot per day. Now, if we go to a glazed panel, the next rung up, you can see that we went from 900 to 1,340 BTUs per square foot per day. That's a lot more. That's, at least, that's about 50% more heat 
by covering it with glass. Now, the best way to explain what a glazed collector, why does it heat better, is from your automobile. If it's a cold, clear day and the sun is out and you close your windows, your car is hotter than heck when you get out of the store, right? Yes. That's what this does. This is designed to do it. It's a special black coating that really absorbs the heat. So they can stagnate at 400 degrees. But when they're operating with pool water running through it, it's putting out water that's maybe 10, 15 degrees warmer than the pool. And it'll do so not only on clear sunny days, but on a mild cloudy day, it'll be putting out about the same amount as an unglazed panel on a sunny day when it's nine degrees colder than the pool. And on a cloudy day, it's still putting out a good amount of heat. So uh, glazed panels work a lot better, but they cost a lot more. So one right. has to weigh the cost versus benefit. If you only wanna swim from April through October and you live say in the San Fernando Valley or in uh, Tucson or something, then you go with unglazed and unglazed is very common. It's the most common um, and unglazed comes, a lot of them are plastic and this would be an example of a plastic one. And this is probably what most of you have seen. They're on the ugly side, but they work. Yeah. Let me ask you something, Ted. I had always heard solar companies that come to our IPSA chapters and you know give their presentations. They size their systems usually just based on a percentage of the square footage of the pool that they're covering. And that, that it seems to be is these BTU models that you're showing us here, is that how you actually size a system? Uh, it seems to be a more scientific way of doing it. So we don't use this to size a system because there's so many variables. Although there are tools, occasionally we put it into a computer and do an F chart analysis of you know, a certain zip code and a pool with or without a blanket and how much heat it's gonna take. We mostly do that to calculate savings because okay. almost every pool at the moment has a backup source of heat. So we're talking about saving heat, not trying to do the whole job. Uh, it's impossible to do the whole job with solar as we started. Um, I, I, I guess, you know, you have to look, if you look at further down on this chart, oh, uh, anyway, that, that figure is called coverage. Okay. Term coverage. So coverage the percentage is the of the, this, of the, the square pool. Footage. Yeah. Percent of the pool surface area in solar panels. Why do we use surface area? Well, that is the biggest source of heat loss, especially if there's no blanket, it is directly proportional to surface area not the depth. Um, you're all pool professionals, you may already know this, but um, if a pool is uncovered and it is say three foot deep and a pool is, un and a next door neighbor's pool is uncovered and it's six feet deep, they lose almost the same amount of heat overnight, which is to say that the shallow pool might lose 10 degrees overnight and the deep pool will lose five degrees overnight. But when you calculate out the number of BTUs 
to heat that volume of water, it's the same. Now there's a little heat loss through the sides, but that's not anywhere near as big a, a, a proportion of the amount of heat a pool takes as the surface. Put a blanket on there, depth has a little more effect. Uh, so it's, you know, a blanket is the best thing one can do to hold the heat in, whether it's the bubble type, which works great, actually better than the automation, uh, except that people will use the automation and not the bubble type. So uh, it's hard. Right, exactly. The bubble type's better because it lets the sun in, where the solid, uh, they don't make a clear automated one that I've ever seen. So when we get to, now you might look at this, this chart has a category C. Category C is more extreme, 36 degrees. That means the ambient air might be 49 when you want an 85 degree pool. 49 degree outside air and you, in the day, I don't care about it, at night, in the day, when you want an 85 degree pool. Well, there are places where they're swimming year round, uh, you know, and that might be the case. In that case, this would be the performance of this panel, 774. Now that's still pretty good. I mean, that's about half of what it was uh, when it was nice and warm out. So it's still producing pretty well. And now that brings us to the third type of collector. We had unglazed, here we have glazed. Now we're gonna look at what brought this conversation up, which was evacuated tube. I looked up different ones for this talk and found the best rated one, which was Apricus, and they look like this. Now, an evacuated tube collector, let me try to find a chart here. There's what they look like. They don't, they don't look, they don't look terribly good. Oh, I think I had the chart here. Oh yeah, here. All right, so this is an evacuated tube chart, Apricus, the one I was just showing you. So if you look over here on the right side of this chart at B, you see 44,000 BTUs per panel per day. Now those other numbers were in square foot. So let, I've done the math and I can tell you what it is. It's 43,000 BTUs per, 43.7 BTUs per square foot per panel in category <clears throat> B. If we go per square foot, it's 864. Now, the glazed sun earth panel was 1,140. It was better under these circumstances than this more expensive evacuated tubes. The unglazed seemed like it was better too, wasn't it? What's that, unglazed? What's, yeah, wasn't the unglazed better as well? Let's look. No, 900. Mm in category B, and here we were, uh, the answer was 1140 when I, uh, excuse me, 770, uh, 864, 864 when we do the division. But it's 900 for the end glaze, so isn't it better? I'm confused. Oh, you're yeah. right. 
You're absolutely right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, am I reading it wrong? I don't know. Nope, you're right. 864 versus 900. So almost identical. And yet yeah. the unglazed collector is probably a third of the cost. <laughs> right. Now that is on a day where the air is nine degrees colder than your pool. Now, if you are swimming, if you're heating year round, let's go down to category. Well, let, let's look at the glazed compared to this, which was here. And the glazed, 1340 compared to that 864. Right. Much better, much better than the more expensive evacuated tubes. So why would they even make evacuated tubes for higher temperature water, air conditioning, or trying to heat a house in Aspen or something like that, you know, where you, you really need to go uphill with that heat. Because if you go down to category C, hold on a second. If you go down to category E, now look at category E, 144 degree difference between the air and the desired water temperature. That's huge. But with evacuated tube, you get 726 BTUs per square foot instead of 452. So what you brought up about it, evacuated tubes, that's actually where I've heard that they're being used successfully to heat spas in the wintertime. Uh, Perfect. Aspen, you know, the ski areas in, in Colorado, they right. have 300 sunny days a year, even in spite of the snowfall and the cold temperatures. Right. They get a lot of sun. And uh, so that's where I had heard that evacuated tubes might hold some promise for us but in a temperate climate it seems like the rules change a bit right because we're never in the daytime are we ever colder than 50 rare right you know? so yeah that would be category c well for spas it would be somewhere in between but let me show you a different chart so you're saying it's a waste of money in, in the temperatures like Los Angeles and stuff because you don't need that kind of swing as Correct. far as the temperature. So that's why you're saying it's just not worth the money. Right. I have a chart here. In this chart, we can see quite vividly the difference in the three different types of solar panels. The unglazed panel is this red line. This is the collector inlet temperature above ambient. That means the incoming water from the pool or spa. So if the incoming water is say at, uh, oh, this is the difference between above ambient. So if it's 25 degrees above ambient, we run, run a line up here and we can see that the most efficient would be glazed flat plate. But if say it's 80 degrees out, and we want 85 degree water, well, that's only five degrees. And we would come over here on the axis and we go up and we see that that unglazed simple panel, plastic or copper, is running at 80 something percent efficiency. That's damn good. You know, the very best solar electric panel, just as an aside, uh, operates at about 22, 23% efficiency. And here we're getting 80 something efficiency at converting 
the sun's energy into something useful. Now, mm. the glazed flat plate, the glazed example of an unglazed panel, starts at 70% and has a slope like this. So if we were at, say, 15 degree difference in air, we go up here and we see they cross. Actually, that's closer to 20, 25 degrees. At that point is where the glazed panel performs better than the unglazed panel. So if it was uh, 65 out and you want an 80 degree pool, they operate almost the same, unless there's a breeze. If there's a breeze, the glazed panel takes over big time because a breeze increases that heat loss. This is, these numbers are with no breeze. Now this red one is the evacuate, excuse me, the blue one is the evacuated tube. It starts way down here. It's less efficient and it's less efficient than the unglazed until about, oh, say 30 degrees difference in air temperature to desired water temperature. But look at where the glazed flat plate collector is. They don't cross until it's like 130 degrees difference. Well, if it's zero out and you want 115 degree spa, that's where they cross. So even on most spa heating applications in most parts of the United States, you would probably want the glazed panel um, unless you're really, you know, trying to heat it in snow. Um, can I ask a dumb question? Uh, what are we talking about as far as time frame here? What we didn't cover is how long does it take to heat it? Maybe you did cover this and I missed it. Didn't how long that. does it take for these to actually heat to what you're trying, well, you know, the different things you're well, talking first about? Of all, that question is usually not as important as it might seem because you're I not, see. you don't generally turn the solar off. It's mm -hmm. always on. So it's always producing what it can until your pool or spa reaches your maximum desired temperature, then it turns off. But um, it would take, for example, if we just installed a system uh, on April 15th and the pool's cold, it might take days for that pool to get up to something close to temperature. Uh, little by little, it goes up, you know, maybe it goes uh, eight degrees warmer the first day, and then it drops five degrees overnight, and then it goes up eight degrees, and then it drops five degrees. So I see over time. Now, if it was summer, it'd take less time, but you don't turn it off. So it keeps the pool up there. Uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks because it's replacing the heat that you lost overnight. Do you have a rough estimate? Do you have a rough idea of the temperature rise you get with the way you normally size a solar system over what ambient water would be without any solar heat whatsoever? What is you what can we expect in terms of warmer water out of out of an average solar system? So in one day, you get four or five degrees more than you would have from just the sun. But in, in practice, because you're not heating it just over one day, you're heating it constantly, you're generally sitting at 10 to 15 degrees above what your pool would be without heat. 
that's without a blanket. That's without a blanket. So um, that means if your pool usually sits all summer at 70 degrees, which is not comfortable, it would be between 80 and 85 uh, most of that time, you know, six, seven months of the year, depending on where you live. But that's what you can expect to get out of it. I mean, that's you know, impressive. That, that's going to keep you swimming. Um, it's going to extend the swim season a lot. Yep. At least in, in our climate and temperature that we have here. Right. It typically triples or more. Like on, on the south side of the Santa Monica Mountains, you know, west side, Pacific Palisades, Santa Monica, West LA, uh, Beverly Hills never get to swimmable temperatures without something. So they're adding gas or they put in solar and then they hardly add any gas except in the winter months, extended winter months. So now <clears throat> evacuated tubes, you wouldn't run the actual pool water through them because of the, the, the amount of heat they pick up. What about unglazed panels? Do we heat the pool water itself with those or are we using some form of a heat exchanger? With unglazed panels, you go direct in every case. I mean, I suppose I could think of a freak case, but even I haven't put in one of those. Uh, if the, the most important thing about solar lasting is that it's empty at night or in some way freeze protected because it freezes everywhere. Like in California, there is no part of California that is excluded from occasional freezing. None. Right. I don't care if you're on the coast in Santa Monica. I have seen frost on solar panels on an April 10th. <laughs> I, I scribed it into the frost April 10th and took a picture of it. Wow. Uh, it freezes everywhere. So you, you, they either have to be empty by gravity, which is what most unglazed panels do, although there are less than competent or scrupulous, I don't know which to, one or the other, uh, contractors who just slap these panels flat on flat roofs. This is not good. This will not last. Sometimes it's a lot cheaper to do that. Um, and when we come across systems like that, we attempt to save them by doing something called winterizing, where we disconnect the pipes from the panels, like in early November, and hope the water will evaporate out of the little tubes that are flat on the roof because it won't drain. And uh, it usually works. And then we, we plug it back in in the spring. So two service calls a year, and we try to save those panels. And the people saved a lot of money on their original installation uh, because to pitch a panel uh, and have it survive windstorms uh, costs more money. It requires a structure, whereas to lay it flat on the roof and barely tie it down is not that, not that hard to do. Mm -hmm. So that uh, is something that very few clients that I know of that have solar installed think about having it serviced regularly. Um, so what, what is the, uh, the downfalls to that? 
Well, there's other than freeze protection, if you have a system that doesn't drain itself, there really isn't a requirement for service. Solar is a very low uh, service thing. It'd be like, um, you know, unless it's broke, you don't fix it. Unless it's yeah. leaking, unless it's dripping, there's nothing proactive you can do to prevent something. Um, you know, unless it's a really old system and then it should probably be looked at to see if the attachments are loosening or something like that. That's more for your roof or for possible wind damage. But uh, other than that, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I don't suggest regular service unless you know it's broke. You know, if your pool's not heating when spring comes or, you know, most people, we try to teach them enough to know if it's working or not. Um, and, and of course your better pool men will know if it's working or not. Um, but, you know, not everybody's in that category and then maybe they should have it checked out every now and then. There's usually a motorized valve that diverts the water through the panels when the panels are warmer than the pool. And there's a control that runs that and a maximum temperature. So you set it for say 86 and when it reaches 86, it will turn off. Until it reaches 86, it will do all that it can. It won't always reach it, but it'll do all that it can with the limitations of the available sun and the nighttime air temperature, how much you're losing from the pool. So when, when you're setting up a system, um, are you sending all of the water of the pool up to the panels? Do you, how, how do we determine um, how to, how to adjust the flow rate and how much water we're sending to the roof? So generally we send it all, but if it's a small system and a big pool, we might not send it all. It's based on, you know, we kind of want four or five, if it's unglazed, we want four or five gallons per minute per panel. So you got 10 panels, you got 40, 50 gallons per minute. With most pools, uh, you just divert the filter water. You don't have a separate pump. If you got a really long pipe run, maybe a really big pool that's barely able to filter itself without solar, we would add a secondary pump, you know, like right. a half horse whisper flow or something. Like they a side can, stream pump. Yeah, they can kind of just tee out of the line and tee back into the line. Then you have zero effect on the flow rate of the pool. And uh, I've certainly run into, you know, high-end pools where they don't want any effect from the solar on the pool filtration. And so that's what we can do. You asked earlier about, um, whether we send the pool water directly through panels. So with glazed or with uh, evacuated tubes, we generally do not send the pool water through the panels. And in fact, it's, I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons, but uh, especially on evacuated tubes, because we don't know always as much as we would like to know about them. Uh, I don't know that they can take pool chemicals. Uh, glazed panels can generally take pool chemicals, but it's still kind of frowned on. Um, we try to go with a heat exchanger in between the panels and the pool. Then again, we are not affecting the flow of the pool. The heat exchanger is a fixed thing where the pool water usually will go through it all the time, not in every installation, but usually. 
So we have a titanium heat exchanger. The pool water goes through it and our collector water goes through the other side of the heat exchanger with a very small pump moving water through glazed panels. And we design that system so that the panels are empty at night. One thing most people don't know is that glazed panels can reach temperatures 15 degrees colder than the ambient air at night. On a cold, clear night, they radiate heat to outer space and they just plummet in temperature. So that means if it's 40 degrees outside, it could be 15 degrees inside that panel. Wow. Or 25, 25 degrees inside that panel. Well, that's cold enough to freeze because your half inch tubes don't hold that much water and they're just sitting there still if it was full of water. So every glazed panel should be empty uh, at night. Or if it's, you know, uh, if it can't be empty at night, then it's got to be drained before winter. And that would kind of defeat the purpose of glazed. So that's normally not the case. Now we've done, there are two ways to make a glazed panel freeze proof. Some people use propylene glycol. So the panels have a freeze-proof fluid in them, non-toxic freeze-proof fluid. And that circulates and transfers the heat to the pool water in that titanium heat exchanger. That is not the best way. That is not the most elegant, trouble-free way. Because what do you do in the summer when your pool is 85 or 90 and you don't want it any hotter and you turn off your solar so it doesn't get any hotter. And now your panels are going to 400 degrees with glycol in them. This is not good. It's not- That was gonna be my next question actually. It's is not what good for the long term. It starts to break down the glycol. So I use a more elegant solution, uh, which simply requires a little logic and design, but less parts and less service. And that is called drain back. In a drain back system, the panels are empty when it's off by gravity. Not pool water, but just regular water. So we have a closed loop of water and a bubble of air. Now that bubble of air is in the panels when it's at rest. So at night, panels are full of air. But there's water in a small reservoir below the panels. When the little pump turns on and lifts that water through the panels to start collecting heat, the air is pushed down into that little reservoir and floats on top of the water and sits in that reservoir. The water percolates through the air, goes down to the heat exchanger, transfers it heat. its heat. When that pump turns off for any reason, like the pool reached its desired temperature, or it's nighttime, the sun went down, or there's a power failure, for whatever reason, the water drains out of those panels and that bubble of air, like a basketball you were holding underwater, goes up. It wants to go up and get into those panels fast. Panels are dry, harmless. Whether it's hot or whether it's freezing, they won't boil, they won't get damaged by, by ice. Nothing will hurt them. That's, that's called drain back and almost all my systems are drain back, except for the 
unglazed pool system, which are mostly direct. That's a, a problem that I had on one glazed system that was installed uh, here in Southern California. It was a glycol system. And as long as the, the system was picking up heat and everything was moving along, it was fine. But repeatedly, uh, when the system shut down or if there was a power, as you said, a power failure, anything that happened that interrupted the flow of pool water through the system, the heat exchanger got so hot that it melted the plumbing on either side of it. And, and it was just a constant, constant nightmare. Yep, yep. And, and all of those things are things you have to consider. Unglazed panels are almost entirely plumbed in PVC, almost always, except for the actual connections to the panels which generally are CPVC so that the panels can reach, unglazed panels can reach maybe 160, 170 in, in hot, hot weather that where no water is going through them. Uh, so at that kind of temperature, PVC gets soft. And if you got a hose clamp clamping to it, it's gonna shrink and it's gonna loosen, it's gonna pop off and you're gonna have a huge flood of water pouring off the roof. Um, so only the connections are usually CPVC, but when the water's running, the rest of the piping can be PVC. Now with, uh, glazed panels, we generally use copper almost entirely because again, it's indirect. So we got plain old water. There's no need for any treatments. You don't need to change that water. Water is inert, doesn't go bad and it's sealed. Um, so with copper, type L copper, it's going to last a lifetime. And, uh, you know, if there's much of a pipe run, we insulate it. If it's underground, we insulate it. Because um, there'll be a bigger pipe, uh, temperature difference, so you'd be losing more to underground. With evacuated tube, which we hardly ever, ever use here in LA, uh, again, you would use copper piping. Um, and it would be indirect. So another question I had is on, uh, because I've seen uh, different schools of thought on this with different pool builders, um, when there is a gas heater and the solar is supplementing it, is it better to install the solar upstream of the gas heater or downstream? Great question. Uh, we almost always put it upstream. Occasionally, a pool builder has done something different. On occasion, they've even piped around the heater, which is kind of silly because then you can't use both. <laughs> it's one or the other. Uh, so that would be, in my opinion, wrong. Uh, but um, we put it upstream. And the reason is it's kind of practical that if, a, if the water is coming back from the solar, at, his, at your desired temperature, then the gas heater won't turn on if you want that kind of automation. So when panels are plumbed direct, where you put the pool water through them, we mentioned that freeze damage was very important. So it has to empty. Well, there needs to be a special part up on top of the panels called a vacuum breaker. A vacuum breaker is closed when there's pressure on it, but whenever there's no pressure on it, it's open and it lets air in. Imagine your finger on a straw that's full of water. The water stays in the straw when you pull it out of the cup. If you take your finger off, it lets the water drain out. 
that's what a solar panel is on a roof. If you don't let air in, there's no way for the water to drain. So, um, and, and by the way, this, as an aside, this is a, the most, one of the most common service calls that we can solve over the phone is when a pool man calls and says, oh, uh, you know, something wrong with the solar, there's bubbles in the pool constantly. Now, there's supposed to be bubbles in the pool when it first starts, because you're pushing all that air out of the panels. Remember, it was empty at night. So you get all sorts of bubbles, but then they should stop. If they don't stop, it means that you're sucking in air off the roof. And that is not a solar problem. The vacuum breaker, if it fails, it will leak water out, but it's meant to let air in when there's negative pressure. So it's, the air is coming from the vacuum breaker, but it's not because the vacuum breaker failed, it's because the filter is dirty or some other cause for low flow from the pool. Could be leaves in the skimmer, could be low pool water, anything that would cause low flow. Could be a plugged up impeller on a, on, on a pump where leaves happen to get into it. Whatever is causing low pressure, low flow, dirty filter, whatever. It's almost always dirty filter. <laughs> Generally, we say, you know, what's the pressure on the filter gauge? Oh, our filter gauge doesn't work. Okay, get one. <laughs> so basically the same thing that you'd check when a gas heater fails, the first thing is the first thing you check on a solar system as well. There you go. Low flow. You know, we want, and we happen to have a more uh, verifiable symptom, which is those bubbles. You can see it. You know, when those bubbles don't stop, it's low flow. Well, th this has been some great stuff, Ted. I, I really yes, I've learned it. a lot today. Um, understanding the difference of the, the types of solar that's out there, um, the the ways to pick up heat in the pool. And what what is your opinion on? There are some systems that use coils of tubing in the pool deck that are designed to. Uh, heat the pool and cool the pool deck at the same time? Do you ever run across those or do you install those? Great question. So I never install those. They generally don't work very effectively. Um, structurally, such tubing has to be at least an inch below the, the deck. Now concrete is a great insulator. It's not a very good heat conductor. You know, they used to build, they build houses out of concrete and, you know, say in, in New Mexico or places where they absorb sun all day long, stay cool inside <laughs> because right. it doesn't conduct heat. And then right. at night, the heat slowly started to get in there and it keeps the place, you know, warmer at night. So you can't do that with solar pool heating. Uh, also, heat tends to want to go up, not down. And here you have the sun hitting the surface of that deck trying to go down into this tubing underneath. Now heat does go from warm to cold, so it will go down, but not very fast. It is more of an insulator. And you can't go less than an inch or your concrete will crack. Um, secondly, so because of those factors, you need a lot of tubing, like four times the amount of solar panels you would need. So if you typically would put in 80 to 100% of the pool uh, with um, regular solar, with say unglazed or glazed solar, 
Here, you would be putting 400% of the pool. Well, there usually isn't anywhere near that much pool deck. Yeah, pool deck is not that. It is in the sun. I mean, you can't have trees and lawn chairs and, you know, whatever, plants and uh, things and, and patio covers. That stuff, that's not usable area. It's got to be in the sun. The third factor would be when you need the most heat isn't in the summer. It's in the spring and the fall. Right. And the sun is lower. It's not hit. And again, it's shaded more. If you've got a wall somewhere or a fence or whatever, you know, or a building, it's shaded a lot more. And it's a glancing blow. It's not direct. It's not perpendicular. So you're getting less energy on the surface. So it's more of a aesthetic gimmick uh, that in most cases is undersized and doesn't work. So, so Ted, let's fast forward into a world that this actually happens where gas heaters are eliminated and banned. Uh, and all only choices we have at this point are solar and heat pumps. Right. How do the two of them work together? Uh, what could we expect? I mean, is it going to get us close? Can we heat a spa uh, if we had both of these tools? Great question. So in California, which is probably, I guess, like you said, leading the nation. And as California goes, usually goes the nation, good or bad. Um, so as we electrify, as we believe we want everything to be electric and nothing to be gas, um, there's a couple of uh, real world facts. Number one, Electricity, and I just want to say this, get it out of the way, electricity is mostly from gas <laughs> and, coal. <laughs> and coal, which right. is worse than gas. So uh, until that's not the case, uh, it, it's advanced planning for a day when electricity is not from coal and gas. Right. Okay, I'm, I'm okay with that, but th let's deal with the fact. So. Um, meanwhile, our clients are faced with that question. What do we do? We're building a house. They don't want us to put in gas or they won't let us put in gas. What do we do? We've got this big pool. What are we going, how are we going to heat it? So in my opinion, it's going to take all three, not just all two, but all three things. And they will all result in the most cost-effective alternative. So Number one of the three is a heat pump, because if you have a spa, uh, you're not going to be able to heat a spa uh, if you decide at 6 p.m., oh, honey, let's use the spa tonight, and you rely on solar. That is, it's not going to be hot. Right. You've got to heat a spa when the sun is out. Even with glazed collectors, it's not going to heat it at night. Uh, so you got to have a heat pump. Now, the drawback to heat pumps, there's two of them, I guess. One is they use electricity and that's not cheap. And number two, um, they uh, are relatively small. At this moment, I don't know of any big heat pumps. Uh, the biggest I could find on the internet this morning still is about 144,000 BTUs worth. And that's about a third of the typical gas heater. 
Right. So if you were used to heating your spa in 20 or 30 minutes with a gas heater, it's going to take an hour and a half. And imagine how long it'll take to heat the pool, given that. So right. um, with that in mind, uh, that brings up solar thermal, uh, that having solar thermal and keeping that pool and spa at least closer to the temperature you want, and then doing the rest of it with a heat pump, that's step two. And the third thing would be solar electric. It is already very cost-effective to have solar electric on your house, whether you have a pool or not, whether you have to heat it, run a heat pump, but the more electricity your house uses, and a heat pump's gonna increase that significantly, the more you need solar electric. Now, solar heat, when I say it's cost-effective, I mean, uh, in, in, if you paid cash, you could, in six, seven years, it's paid for itself. And good systems will last and are even guaranteed 25 years parts, and in some cases, labor too. Parts and labor 25 years by a manufacturer, how many times is that going to pay for itself? You have nothing to worry about. Now, in the case of uh, uh, in the case of a loan or purchasing it that way, it's a no-brainer. You can you can finance a solar electric system and be paying less per month than you're saving in electric. Again, 25-year parts and labor warranty pays for itself over and over again. You say you save more and more every month as as gas rates or as electric rates go up. You're saving more. So if you're if you have a house with photovoltaic uh, and you add a pool to your home, uh, it would be a great time to also look at the number of photovoltaic panels that you have and possibly increase that system to accommodate the extra things we're putting on the pool. Correct. Solar electric is not something. Well, solar of any kind is not something that the general public grew up with. Right, so it's not something very familiar. It's not like cars. You know, when you were a kid, you saw your parents buy cars, sell cars, buy cars, sell cars, and even houses. But solar, it's new to most people. So one of the first things they got to realize is that solar is quantitative. It is finite. It can only do so much, depending on how big it is. So if you have a solar system, and you add a heat pump, you say, oh, I'm going to add a heat pump because I have solar. Unless you got a lot of extra solar, <laughs> it isn't going to do it. It'd be like trying to get to San Francisco uh, in your car on a gallon of gas. Yeah. No, you need more than a gallon. You can get from here to the valley, but you're not going to get from here to San Francisco. It's quantitative. So if you had, you know, 30 panels on your house and you add a heat pump, you might need to add another 10 something like wow. that. I'm not doing the calculation, but it's a lot of energy. It's like, you know, the biggest things in your house that use energy are your air conditioners and your refrigerators. And before variable speed, it used to be the pool pump, but now uh, with variable speed technology, that's been taken. That's, that's way down the list now. Yep, helps so a lot. But, you know, a heat pump, uses a 50 amp breaker. Well, that's equal to most air conditioning. Yep. 
they, yeah, they are essentially an air conditioner. Yeah. It's just that, instead of air to air, it's air to water. It's pulling yeah. heat out of the air. Other thing that's important to know, and this is this is just a fact, and I don't know what to uh, editorialize about it, but a heat pump's performance varies with the air temperature. Right. So most literature that you read about heat pumps is is based you know when they say oh we're we're at this incredibly low operating cost it's at ideal conditions right so right. when you're really trying to heat your pool it's not ideal conditions it's colder out and and the humidity matters too yeah humid air has more energy in it more heat dry air doesn't so that matters too. There's all sorts, and the water temperature matters. So it's uh, it's very complicated to figure out what it costs or how long a heat pump has to run to do this or that. Um, but in whatever attempts I've made at doing that, gas is still cheaper. Now, it depends on what part of the country you live in. Right. But in California, right. gas is still a lot cheaper. Well, this is uh, this is great stuff. I th I feel like I really have a lot better understanding about solar now than I had at the start of this conversation. Me too. Thank you Absolutely. for that very much. Um, this conversation on uh, electrification, decarbonization is a complex one. There's no simple, easy answers to anything, and I think uh, that that's a takeaway that comes out of every conversation we have with with people from every discipline um yeah and and i really appreciate your input and your your honesty and your your uh uh intelligence that you brought to us uh, on that issue of decarbonization yes my pleasure look forward to doing it again Thanks, and if they ted. wanted to learn more ted from you they would just go to all, allvalleysolar.com is that correct that'd be great yep Yes. So those of you listening, and if you're listening on the audio only uh, side of this podcast, I highly recommend going to the YouTube channel and watching this video because you can't see the graphs and the things that he explained, obviously, on the audio version. So I would recommend going over to the YouTube channel and looking at the graphs and the, and the things that he talked about during this podcast. Otherwise, we are so grateful for you for listening and hope that you will come back and listen to our next episode. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. A new voice in the industry, a resource for all, education for you. This is Pool Pro Podcast. Build relationships and share important news as we get ready for our next backyard adventure. Pool Pro Podcast, backyard adventures are better together. Please take a moment to share, like, and review our content with all of those that would be interested.